Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I am talking to Dr. Alex P. Smith about his research on political manipulation. It's almost like we planned this with the election tomorrow. Did you know there's an election tomorrow? Go vote. This is episode 53? 54! Episode 54. It's 54. That was a test. This is episode 54 of Untenured Tracks. that in the negotiation process to 
um, to get people who aren't used to working together to make concessions and then kind of vote together. Um, and then the third one, dimension manipulation, is when you kind of reframe something so that it's being thought about in a different way um, in a, that, that kind of changes the, the concept, changes the, the way that everyone is conceiving the problem and the, the possible solutions um, and gets them to reconsider things. So um, in this book, he, kind of, he goes through these different case studies, these different examples, and I just found it fascinating. Um, and then when I, and that kind of served as the basis for my research, along with another book on um, political negotiation by that was edited by Jane Mansbridge, um, and came out of a task force that was created, I think, in 2012, 2013, when she was the um, the chair of the American Political Science Association. Um, she created this task force because um, because political science doesn't always look at negotiation in a great way, she argues. Um, and in the book, they say that uh, the, the task force concludes that the only subfield in uh, political science that, that has really developed a literature on negotiation is international relations. Um, and I'm in the American politics subfield, um, so uh, I used to work in government and um, one of the problems I noticed when I was working in the Minnesota House of Representatives is how come they struggle so bad to pass legislation? Um, so I worked on the Ways and Means Committee for two years while I was there, which is the, the committee that handles all the money. Anything that spends um, out of the more than $2,000 out of the general fund has to go through that committee. Um, and so lots of interesting things happen behind the closed doors when you're um, when you're involved in that process, when you're uh, keeping track of which bills are there, and you post all the amendments that, that come up, you, you really kind of notice these intricacies that you wouldn't you wouldn't see if you weren't working behind the scenes. Um, and it's really hard to get that literature in political science to, to get that kind of access. Um, there's a few people who have done it. Um, and so that's kind of the, the work that I'm trying to build off of and that kind of um, inspires me. So um, that was a, a long first part of the, the answer <laughs> to your question on what am I working on. So what I'm working on is um, this theory of hair aesthetic really hasn't gotten as much airtime as it should, um, in, in my opinion. So I'm trying to bring it back. I would say we should be conceiving politics in this way and we should be conceiving political negotiation in this way of how right now when we're in an era of polarization where we're in, um, we see a lot of stalemate, why doesn't Congress, why don't state legislatures pass much legislation? And then why do they end up with the legislation that they get? Um, you'd be surprised in how many hearings they're debating do we use must or may or shall. Um, but it's and it all has legal consequences um, for how all of that gets um, used later on. So um, part of what I'm trying to do is to develop a theory of policy change that says, well, what has to happen for something to get passed when there's been a lot of stalemate? Um, so my book, my dissertation, my dissertation and now my book project, um, look at uh, cases involving civil rights. So. Um, from 1875 to 1957, the United States Congress 
did not enact or send to the president, I should say, any pieces of legislation. So for for 82 years, no civil rights legislation from the, the end of Reconstruction until um, uh, Eisenhower's second term. Um, so what happens in 1957 that allows them to pass legislation for the first time on this topic? Um, and so I, that's one of my case studies is the 1957 Civil Rights Act. What are they doing there? Um, and you have to look at the institutions. You have to look at the ways that the different legislators are interacting with each other, um, how the president gets involved in his administration, how interest groups are getting involved. Um, and so I, what I'm seeing there is it's not so much the agenda setting, which we have a lot of the literature on, but the way that you overcome that kind of stalemate that's really entrenched, the way you get, um, I, I call it activating legislative inertia, getting Congress going, getting the legislature going on a certain topic, is through strategic voting and dimension manipulation. Um, and often in tandem, um, the way Riker talks about it in his book is you kind of give an example of one, but it's isolated. Um, whereas what I'm seeing in the negotiation process is they're layered together. Um, so you have, um, the, to try and expand your coalition of voters and say the United States Senate um, you're doing some dimension manipulation with a few of them and then you're also doing some strategic voting with other ones um, and you have multiple iterations of each in order to build a winning coalition um, so that, that's in large part um, what I'm working on but then also um, Political science has a tendency to not look at normative consequences of something like that. Uh, and uh, so when you're looking at, say, the 1957 Civil Rights Act, you realize a lot of the negotiation process and a lot of the, uh, a lot of what happens there to facilitate reaching an outcome actually weakens the legislation. And makes it harder to enforce, and it doesn't expand civil rights as far as the original proposal. So, um, why? What impact do these strategies have on policy outcomes? Is, is another part that I'm trying to to look at and grapple with. Um, that uh, it's harder to do, or it's not viewed as much as science because it's not as objective. I think it's really interesting to read it, but it's something that, you know, that we do need to be mindful of and talk about. Yeah, so uh, in the past, I've talked to people on the people who have been on the show about objectivity and like how do they how do they feel about it, um, and largely come to a consensus. And I think it might be like a generational thing, um, since I'm I'm I mean the purpose of the show is interviewing people without tenure. Um, and the consensus has been that like objectivity is a myth <laughs> that that we we really need to let go of this idea that we're able to somehow do value free research when even just by the nature of how we come to our topics right that we that we picked topic a over topic b um because it seemed more interesting to us <laughs> is not an objective evaluation of the work um so just just tying that thread in um, in terms of the, the two projects, um, I have, uh, so 
how are you how are you doing this like what's your method as i'm not i'm completely unfamiliar with how this type of of political science is done so how how are you how are you going about this sure yeah that's a great question so um i use qualitative methods um namely um, for the, the case studies that i'm doing the historical case studies i'm using um, process tracing um, which uh, um, is kind of this term that uh, there's a lot of disagreement over what is process tracing um, and what does that look like and is it scientific or not um but the the consensus tends to be, or one of the best definitions I've found for that is um, that process tracing is a lot like detective work, um, particularly the, the theory building process tracing that I'm doing where I'm looking at a bunch of different cases and using the comparative method to compare them and look for patterns and types of sequences of events. Um, so with, uh, with this process tracing, what I'm looking at is sequences of events, so um, whatever types of uh, primary literature I can get my hands on for different um, case studies that I'm doing. So uh, I went to the London B. Johnson Library in Austin, Texas to do some archival research and access some documents that were in the archives there from his time as Senate Majority Leader for the 1957 Civil Rights Act case um, because he's one of the main uh, political actors in that instance. So uh, what am I doing there? I'm going and I'm looking at memos that his staffers have left for him. Um, I'm looking at newspaper articles that they have back there. I'm looking at letters that he received from his constituents, um, what they're saying about this, how they're trying to convince him either to pass something or to block it um, because he's a southern legislator um, the, and really what's most helpful there is things like um, memos from his staffers to um, to the senator um, and the types of things that they're saying, the types of strategies that they're uh, arguing he should take, um, the types of weaknesses that they're seeing in say the Republican coalition um, that, that's trying to do something else with this legislation. Um, so I look at that. Um, archival research helps. Um, that's expensive. It's hard to do. Um, so I was able to get a grant from the Dirksen Congressional Center to, to help fund that. Um, and then it's a lot of reading. Um, a lot of reading secondary materials, too. Um, so lots of other books that are talking about civil rights or that are looking at that period in history. Um, and when I'm going through those, I'll even look and I'll see what primary documents are they looking at so that then if I get the opportunity, um, I can look at those materials and see what did they actually find here or is there something hidden in there that they, that they haven't seen. Um, so that's a big part of it, archival research. Um, I mentioned the comparative method, so that's how we compare the cases to each other um, because they're different eras um, that I'm looking at. So how do you compare, say, the Constitutional Convention when we don't have the same institutional setup to the United States Senate in 1957? Um, what are the... the precautions you have to take when you're trying to make that comparison, because you have two very different institutions there. Um, and uh, 
trying to think what other methods I've used um, within that um, case study research. Um, and those are those are the primary ones that I've that I've done so far. Um, but it really requires getting really deep into these cases and reading things that uh, repeat themselves over and over, mm-hmm. um, just in hopes of finding something that maybe has a different take. But then you can go back and you can see where they got that information that's leading them there and can verify it at all. Um, and if not, you don't use it. If you um, if you can then you do use it and you cite your sources. So, lots of citing sources. <laughs> no doubt. Um, so what led you to focus on the civil rights era for this project? Um, so, it actually was just kind of by chance. So it's not just the civil rights era, it's civil rights in general. Um, so I'm actually looking at three okay. different eras. Um, the Constitutional Convention, um, which I mentioned already, mm-hmm. in part because that sets up the later rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of got included because I was reading an article by um, a political scientist named David Bryan Robertson, and he talks about um, James Madison's opponents at the Constitutional Convention. Um, when you go through junior high, high school, they teach you James Madison is the father of the Constitution. Um, and then in my first year seminar in American politics, as a graduate student, we read this article by Robertson. Um, and he talks about all the ways that um, that Madison didn't get what he wanted at the convention. And there's this one guy who's kind of stifling him named Roger Sherman from Connecticut. Um, and if you've heard of the Connecticut Compromise, he's, um, he's the architect behind that. So that matters for them setting up the Senate. Um, and you get two senators from each state, and then you get the balance rule later on, um, where we have the same number of free and slave states. So um, that's a case that I need to add that wasn't in my dissertation that's going in my book is the, the passage of the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Um, and then I look at the Compromise of 1850, um, which was a case that I found that was just fascinating to me. How did they go about passing this and why did it fail so bad? Um, uh, which is the they convene in 1849 and they start talking and they realize there's all these different issues that are somehow connected to slavery in some way. Um, and they haven't been able to pass anything for 30 years related to slavery. The House of Representatives banned talking about slavery on the floor for like seven or eight years. Um, and then in 1850, they think they've solved the slavery problem forever, and then 10 years later, we have a civil war. So um, the, the nice thing about that case, too, is that there's a failed attempt and a successful attempt at passing legislation. So that's good for using, um, you asked about methods earlier, that's good for using a comparative method. So really, these how did these cases come about was somehow in my studies I just came across them as these fascinating examples of you would expect nothing to happen when they show up and they start meeting because that's what had been the pattern Um, no legislation passed they they couldn't do anything in the um, under the Articles of Confederation to to try and solve the problems Um, so they, they convened this um, second convention in Philadelphia. Um, 
they, they tried one in Annapolis and no one showed up, it didn't work. Now they've got a new constitution, so how'd they do that? They've been talked about slavery for 30 years, so why are they passing legislation now? They don't pass it. Um, and then after Reconstruction, they don't pass anything for 82 years. What makes this happen? Um, they were all connected by, by race or civil rights in some way, and it just kind of stumbled across them by accident. Um, I think this theory can probably be expanded beyond cases involving civil rights or racial legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, another case that I'm going to add to the book is um, the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Um, so how do they go about passing the sweeping health care reform um, that they've tried a lot of times and failed at? Um, so I'm looking forward to adding those cases. Um, I'm going to get to go out to Washington, D.C. at some point um, after COVID and um, be at the Library of Congress for um, I think five or six months. Oh wow! Fellowship, doing some some research and adding, um, which will make it so I can add those two new cases. So I'm looking forward to that. But kind of on hold right now. <laughs> yeah, but six months in the Library of Congress has got to be like a dream come true. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so it's um, it's for a a fellowship, a postdoctoral fellowship on congressional um, policy making, so legislative yeah. negotiation. So I found out about that a few weeks ago. Nice. Uh, we we kind of have to wait. We can't negotiate a start date until the library knows when they can reopen. <laughs> so um, looking forward to whenever that gets to happen. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah. So I'm curious, do you have any kind of like criminal justice legislation in, in, as any of your case studies? Because I, I would think that would tie into civil rights. Um, so not... Not explicitly criminal mm-hmm. justice. There is some aspects to the 1957 Civil Rights Act um, where they actually um, they try to. That's part of the negotiation process. Is it starts off as criminal cases, but then they expand it to civil cases because they don't. Southerners don't want to be charged with a crime. Um, they'll accept a suit or something like that. Um, but there, there's not necessarily any. Uh, it's kind of, I would say, tangential. Um, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Just curious. Um, so, kind of like a, another like big picture question. Um, how are you able to know, ask this in a way that makes sense? Um, uh, how are you able to, to disentangle like what Congress is doing from some of the pressures that they might be getting outside of Congress. So in other words, uh, when we see Congress acting because there's rioting in the streets, how how are you able to, I guess, control for the rioting? Right, so that's actually, um, that's one of the parts of the the theory that comes in, is um, what's prompting them to actually start discussing this legislation. And a lot of times it's um, what, what I argue is a legitimacy crisis. So um, you're getting riots. Um, and so basically what's happening in order to start this whole process of negotiation is this um, questioning, widespread questioning of the legitimacy of the um, political system. Um, 
does this work? Can this meet the needs of the people? Mm-hmm. Um, who are the people whose needs are being met and who aren't being met? And that's part of why the, the civil rights cases are so interesting. The, the focus on civil rights, I think, makes sense. Um, I don't know if that crisis extends beyond um, instances of civil rights, like if we get into health care or something. But, um, but it's an important question, and so part of what I'm trying to do is to look at what's what's bringing, what's making them come to the table when mm-hmm. they've been not coming to the table at all, mm-hmm. um, unwilling to talk, unwilling to consider anything. I mean, a lot of times it is some sort of riot or protest, or um, in some instances I could imagine it would be primarily economic, so let's say um, some sort of economic crisis, a depression or recession, um, starts bringing them to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do I control for that? Well, I try to include some of the contact that, that people are having with legislators or with the president, with political actors, the pressure that they're trying to put on them. So again, with the archival research, um, I'm looking at letters that um, different unions union leaders are sending to representatives and senators trying to make their case for what they should be doing. Um, The types of articles, newspaper articles that they will send to them um, to help support their argument. Um, So I'm I'm trying to incorporate it in as much Mm -hmm. as I can. Uh, There's all these different things going on Mm -hmm. and all these different pressures coming from all over. Um, you can't just isolate the legislators and assume they're acting within um, kind of a quarantine bubble. That's not what they're doing. They're, they're hearing from so many people, and what are they hearing, and why is that increasing the pressure on them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I've been, I've been kind of teaching myself about the sociology of revolutions over the past year, um, and doing, like... Um, just a, a lot of reading on that and so like we know political violence I think probably more often than not like the effects of it aren't felt until decades after and so that's like like there's rioting happening now but that that could cause Congress to go in and pass you know whatever t- start talking about whatever types of legislation but maybe the rioting happening now is the result of the rioting that was happening 20 years ago you know it's, so it's just it's just really interesting to me to, to think about I mean, disconnect might not be the right word. I guess just the general relationship between sort of um, a a very angry public, <laughs> uh, a very vocal and angry public, and uh, throwing that kind of chaotic energy into uh, a slow-moving... <laughs> um, probably actually like infuriatingly slow moving bureaucracy um I mean sometimes they I think they do a good job of countering each other right and and making sure that nothing nothing rash happens and then other times it's just like I don't know Mentos and Diet Coke (laughs) just an awful 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 mix right so um I think the one of the ways I try to account for that um, in, in my work is um, by incorporating this, this book is one of the arguably the most famous book on Congress um, 
political science. It's by David Mayhew, um, and it's called Congress, the Electoral Connection. Um, and the kind of the thesis of the book um, is that um, members of Congress are single-minded seekers of re-election. <laughs> so their main goal is to get re-elected or to, to get elected to a higher position. Right? Yeah. So the presidency, or if you're a representative, you may want to go into the Senate. So if you have that as kind of a the- theoretical backdrop for what is it that they're doing, um, and then you start to see these protests or um, this increased pressure, they, they start to reevaluate what has to happen for me to get re-elected. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't just keep doing the same old thing. I've got to, I've got to make some sort of change or concession here. Now, that's not always true for all of the legislators, um, for all of the the public officials, and some of them won't want to make that change if they really want to kind of stand firm in whatever it is their belief is. Um, mm-hmm. Or the, you know, of course the uh, the local pressures are different in every different congressional district or every different state, which is a Know, congressional district for Senate. So um, people will respond to that in different ways. Um, but some of them may have to change what they're doing if they want to stay in office. And they might be willing to do that. And if you're not willing, or if you think it doesn't matter what I do, I'm going to lose, then you choose not to run. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that, that's part of the, the theoretical background that goes into that. Well, so when do they start reevaluating what they've been doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when um, sticking to that pattern um, no longer serves that purpose of getting reelected. Yeah, um, you reminded me of a uh, my my state representative um, who is a deeply divisive guy. Um, so I, I volunteer with a group locally, um, a political group locally. Um, and we were doing endorsements um, like a month ago um, and so looking into this guy's record um, every every single vote that he made in Harrisburg he voted with the side that won <laughs> in the last two years and like had I not been aware of some of his what I perceive to be like glaring weaknesses I, I would have been surprised but like it doesn't surprise me that he didn't take a single stance one time that was in the minority like he like whatever like whatever way the wind is blowing today is how I'm gonna vote and I don't think that a lot of people especially now like seeing people as we're kind of struggling with like a new generation of civic engagement types of struggles right like I I don't think a lot of people realize that that's what your electeds are going to do. And the increased uh, emphasis on politicians being able to pass purity tests to be considered <laughs> as as perfect for whichever side is so unrealistic and, and such a just such a bad idea. Um, but yeah. Yeah, having... So, um, I think I mentioned... I worked for a member of Congress in this district office for a year and a half, and then I worked in the Minnesota House of Representatives for three and a half years. So when you're sitting in um, you know, caucus meetings or um, meetings with legislators and you, you get to hear them talk more candidly than they can, say, in front of a camera, um, you, you realize they're very strategic actors. 
um, and there's there's a lot of thought that they put into what they're doing or mm-hmm. what they're not doing, um, and how they vote and how they want other people to vote. So it it really is if you're not behind the scenes, you you may not realize it, you may not see it. Um, the the way someone votes doesn't necessarily reflect their true outcome. So again, back to that strategic voting. Um, and the number of caucus meetings I was in where someone was asking the Speaker of the House, saying, my district can't do this, I need to I need to vote no on this, or I need to vote yes on this thing um, that, that our party doesn't like. Um, it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of tension there, and it's not as simple as just looking at yeses and noes, um, which is one of the reasons why I do this qualitative research, is um, I can look at how, say, I'm not a courts scholar, but I think that this analogy is helpful. I can look at a decision that the Supreme Court makes and see a 5-4 decision, and then you see that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Scalia decided, both voted the same way, but they've each written their own dissent, um, their own dissenting piece, dissenting opinion. And, you know, they have totally different reasons for for dissenting from the majority decision there. And you can't just lump them in saying they have mm-hmm. the same reason. You've really got to look into those contexts. Um, yeah. That's, that's part of what I am trying to do with my, my research, is to understand um, not necessarily average effects of something, but why? Why are they doing this? Why? Um, why does it end up with this specific language and mm-hmm. um, Which, um, you know, it's, uh, I guess the the sausage making process. But but we got to know how that sausage is made. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's not exciting, but sometimes um, sometimes it really is exciting. And there are some people who have written about it in a really um, really compelling and interesting ways. When I read those, that's when I, I feel like I've found my area in political science. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure you're going to find incredible stuff. Um, so, what's it been like going from politics into <laughs> academia, out of the frying pan and into the fire, like literally? Mm-hmm. How's that been for you? Yeah, um, you know, I I thought um, in like 2012, 2013 when I was like. I think I will try to get a PhD. Um, I don't like the way that you know my job is on the line every two years um, with elections, and it's not a reflection of how well I've done my job. It's a reflection on, say, a party yeah. or how well I fit into that party continuing to go. Um, and I didn't like that, so I thought, well, if I could get tenure, there's more stability. And of course, now that just seems like it's never actually going to happen because there's very few tenure track jobs before COVID. Now there's even fewer. Um, but it, I think it was interesting for me to go into graduate school with that that background of professional work in politics um, because. It just gave me a different point of view from, say, someone who who had never worked in politics before. Who all they, not all they've done. Who um, that that seems to belittle it. And I don't mean to belittle people who go directly into a PhD program or um, anything like that. You can 
do absolutely fantastic work that way. I just found that the questions I was interested in were different, um, and that there were sometimes perspectives I could add that were um, that were a little different than what other people were having. So. Um, there's, for example, there there's a pattern in um, um, in political science literature, in American politics literature, to look at bill sponsorship or bill co-sponsorship and take that as signaling something. Um, well, when I was working with the Ways and Means Committee in Minnesota, um, the representative that was the chair of that committee said to me, "Alex, here's your first lesson in politics. There's two reasons that you." Um, that you author a bill to pass it or to make sure it never sees the light of day. Hmm. And so when you have kind of that perspective, you're thinking, well, that if you're taking bill sponsorship as a signal of someone's true preferences, that might be a faulty assumption. Um, you may not be able to assume that they really want that to go through they may just want to claim credit for, for having put their name on it. They may want to control it so that they can make sure that um, if a certain clause stays in, they don't push it through as hard as they want, or as hard as, say, the, um, the people, uh, the outside activists or lobbyists would, um, would want it. So um, I think it, it just led me to ask different types of questions about what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a little bit of adjustment and then every once in a while something would come up where my my experience or my insight would would provide a different type of answer but for the most part you know I could just I could read along with everyone um, it wasn't like I had this whole new perspective um, that no one else could have but mm-hmm. every once in a while there would be a little tiny bit of something I could chime in and say mm-hmm. It's a pretty smooth transition for you, it sounds like. Um, it took a little bit of work, actually. I mean, it, I, I was pretty um, nervous going in because I'd been out of school for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I was a first-gen undergrad, um, so neither of my parents went or have college degrees. So I didn't know what I was doing getting into a PhD program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so. It was definitely eye-opening to, to go in and have it be kind of my my job to be reading all these books and articles and writing. That that was a big change. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be able to do that through my own lens and my own perspective, rather than say writing a letter with some with a representative's name on it, mm-hmm. um, trying to, to put their perspective into that letter, um, it was also very freeing in that regard. Um, but mm-hmm able to uh, put my own voice into what I was doing and to look at the things I, I wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So do you, do you miss politics at all? Not, not really. <laughs> Every <laughs> once in a while um, I'll see something which, ooh, that would be really fun to do um, mm-hmm. or be a part of. Um, if I was going to be in politics right now, it would be more as like a policy analyst um, doing some sort of research, not um, in a non-part, I would want to be in a non-partisan position rather than in um, some place where you're an advisor or um, 
you're you're working for a party and you got to mm-hmm. the line for the machine for what. Um, but I I didn't like that. Gotcha. Um, but um, every once in a while, I'll miss seeing something like uh, some interesting thing that will happen. Um, just wonder what's really going on behind behind the scenes, and I wish I could get that perspective. <laughs> I was I was just curious in case maybe there was a bombshell announcement that you had for uh, an entry into Oklahoma state politics that we could have exclusive breaking news of when this comes out in two months. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> All right. Well, if you think about it, you got a, you got a platform to make any any decisions on. Um, so what's what's teaching been like for you? How how have you, or how, I guess, have you been able to um, talk about your dissertation work and this as it's turned into this bigger, this larger book project? Have you been able to talk about it in the classroom much? Um, I have a little bit. So I've been a teaching assistant for Introduction to American Politics, probably seven or eight semesters. Um, state and local politics for a semester. Um, I got to teach a class on the presidency. Um, and so I, I just talk about some of the strategies that you might be seeing, um, particularly when we look at things like current events. Um, and say, you know, this is kind of what's going on in this negotiation between, um, I think I, I taught that class the, the spring of 2019, so it was right after the House of Representatives had changed control to the Democratic Party. Um, so now we had quasi-divided government with a split split Congress, um, Republican Senate, Democratic House, and then, of course, um, a Republican in the White House. So we could talk about how does that matter for um, what they're actually trying to do, how are they posturing, how are they framing things. Um, and, of course, we had a government shutdown at the beginning of the semester, so we talked about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the different strategies that they're trying to do here? And then um, I loved talking about that was when um, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, delayed the State of the Union address. And so we got to talk about kind of the strategies for that and why and um, what was actually going on. Because if you see the Speaker has just delayed the State of the Union address with no context, um, you're curious. But when you see it with kind of the backdrop of, well, there, there's a uh, federal government shutdown right now. Um, so she's trying to use the leverage that she has to, to affect the negotiations. Um, it, it makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I think the students, helping walk students through that process of, or, or through those considerations helped them to kind of understand better what was going on instead of, if they're just watching CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever other outlet they want, um, they, they're getting a certain view. And if they're only watching that one, they're only getting one view. So um, helping them to kind of navigate all these different narratives that, that they're hearing and figure out, well, what might actually be happening? Um, and then I got to teach a class on, argue, it was called Argument and Persuasion. Um, it was through the university writing program, so it wasn't in political science, but it was about basically teaching first-year students um, about academic writing. 
the different sorts of conventions and things that they would come across when you're taking, say, a humanities class or a social sciences class or on the natural sciences class. So how do you write each of those different settings? And so when we were in the social sciences in particular, I could talk about, um, here's how I'm structuring my arguments. Here are my arguments. And not necessarily, not necessarily for the sake of them understanding my theory, but to try to understand how you go about structuring an argument in social science. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'd love to to do that a little more. Right now I don't have a teaching appointment for this fall. I'm hoping I can get something part-time for the spring. Um, I'm looking for things for fall 2021. I have a couple that I know I'm going to be applying for. Um, I've also done... um, a simulation in my classes where we simulate the budget process mm-hmm. um, so that then students get an opportunity to really experience what it's like to try to get a bunch of people to work together. Um, so I try to give them um, the ways that they have competing interests, so the way that I structure the activity and the assignment where you're trying to do what you're um, they get assigned a role either in the House, the Senate, or the executive branch. Um, they're trying to advocate for their branch and get something as close to what they originally proposed. Um, so then we talk about, well, how would you go about trying to get your budget um, when you're negotiating with these other people? We debrief from that, and I can talk a little bit about, okay, so you said you did this. That's an example of dimension manipulation. Or when I said, okay, now we are in the midst of a depression um, and the economy is doing this, that's dimension manipulation. You've got to change the way that you're going to allocate your money because there might be different needs now. Mm-hmm. Or if there's a hurricane. Um, the people from Florida are now going to want um, a higher budget for, for FEMA or the Department of Homeland Security. So things like that, to, to try and help them realize, you kind of know this stuff intuitively, but now let's recognize what you're actually doing, and then you understand what it is that political actors are doing, um, what they're fighting about, um, and why they're saying the things they're saying, or not doing the things we want them to do. Um, and I think by giving them a more active role in that, you, you create some interest even for people who aren't necessarily interested in going into politics. It, it's a fun activity, um, and it gives them a little more understanding of, of what it is we're trying to see, you know, the, the application base. Mm-hmm. Um, were there um, any, any myths that your students had um, that you found yourself having to kind of, I guess, do some myth-busting on repeatedly? that you can think of? Yeah, that's a great question. I would have to think about that a little more. Um, I can't think of any right off the top of my head. Um, But I am absolutely certain that that there definitely were some. Um, I know for me, um, when when I was a student, um, one of the things I learned and one of the reasons why I love teaching and I decided to go get a PhD because I, I really do want to, to teach and help students learn and think critically. Um, really, uh, 
just the idea that whoever is not on your side politically, whoever is on like the other party, isn't necessarily your enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I had professors in, when I was an undergraduate um, who, who really helped kind of open our eyes and help us think um, about, well, what is legitimate about the claims that the other side is making or the, the positions that they're taking? Um, is there anything legitimate at all, or are they really just you know, these really bad people who are out to ruin the country? Um, and if there's any sort of myth I've had to bust, it's it's kind of that. Um, that just because we have these two parties that don't like each other and take different positions doesn't mean necessarily uh, that one is out to destroy everything that you love um, and destroy our entire country. Now, um, there may be some people who, who you could say the consequences of the actions they're taking are going to be pretty detrimental to, say, political norms and institutional norms and things like that. Um, but if we're if we're starting from the the position that anyone who's not on my side is um, illegitimate, then um, we we don't have much we can do until we, we break that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's a big part of what has kind of driven me to, to go get a PhD is to be able to help students realize that um, and to, to think about how to better um, think about politics. Mm-hmm. So do you have like any specific examples of ways that you're, you've been able to kind of push back against some of the, the political tribalism that students might have? Um, sometimes what I'll do is I'll, you know, one of the ways I'll try to do it is to split students into groups and to assign them a position, mm-hmm. um, like split, split them into two sides. So you have to make this argument. You have it at our next class meeting. You're going to come in and you're going to argue this position. And some students, you you kind of know you're putting them on the, the side that they don't want to be on. Yeah. Um, or that they don't agree with that position. And hopefully, I mean, it's not always 100% effective, but you're hoping that maybe you can get them to engage enough that they'll start thinking um, and, and start taking some tiny steps and maybe take some of the edges off of that, um, that kind of hyper-partisanship, hyper-polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's one of the strategies I've used um, or to um, you know sometimes people will come in with something that's just it's, I don't know where they got this information it's just fake news all around some alternative <laughs> fact and I will, I will try to um, say okay where did you get that information and then I won't try to shut them down necessarily but I'll, um, I'll correct it and so I'll talk about strategies for how do you make sure you're getting good, accurate information in politics because you can't always assume that something you read is correct. Yeah. Um, of course we know that. Um, but what are strategies for making sure you're getting decent information? Um, and so you know, 
looking at different outlets, talking about which outlets are reputable and which ones are not reliable at all. Um, and say, if you're hearing it from here, but you're not hearing it from over there, um, or anything in between, then you need to kind of check the argument that you're making. Um, and so we, we spend some time doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, or I spend some time doing that, trying to make sure that um, that students are equipped yeah. to, to think about is this information I'm getting reliable or do I, do I need to be skeptical? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably a need for higher ed to really think about information literacy. I think just sitting back and, and complaining about Wikipedia for the last 15, 20 years or however long Wikipedia has been around uh, clearly hasn't been enough. <laughs> um, given given everything going on. But, um, hey, I've taken up a lot of your time this morning, so um, we're going to we're gonna call it a day there. Um, I know you've got other meetings you have to get to, too, um, so we'll give you a break. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on to talk about your work. I really appreciate it. Yep, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.